cut out. Um, I think it's fine. Yeah. I, I, it takes like a Pointer. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Perfect. All right, guys. Yeah. Well, um, really pleased that Dr. Festigian is here. He is uh, someone who will, we worked together out in Loma Linda for a while in the PZD, and since then he's at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, where uh, he does. He's a quality improvement director, and he kind of sees a lot of. Um, M&Ms and areas for improvement, obviously, and a uh, good friend of mine, and uh, haven't kept in touch with him recently, but uh, it's good to see him again. Thank you. And uh, I hope he uh, kind of comes back and gives us more lectures. So I'll let him take it away, and uh, glad to have you here. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, PC. Nice to be here. Um, I was overhearing the last part of the previous uh, patient that was presented. This kind of goes along the same thing where things unexpectedly happen and you try to learn from the things, uh, see if you could, you could have prevented it. Um, the We Treat Kids Better, I apologize, it's an advertising campaign from the higher-ups. It's not something that I thought of myself. <laughs> and since I have to use the, the letterhead, I have, to, uh, I have to put it up there, I apologize. Um, as you mentioned, I'm the Quality Improvement Director. Just to give you as a background, my training was in pediatrics, then I was chief at CHLA, then I went to Loma Linda to do a pediatric emergency medicine fellowship, and then I came back to CHLA to work as an attending in the emergency department there. Um, it's a great hospital to work at. Uh, it's large volume, large pathology. There's always sick kids all the time. All the cases I'm going to present are all cases that I was involved in, meaning either I took care of them on the way they came back, or I was consulted it because of the quality improvement issues. Um, on a given uh, winter month, for example, there, there could be days where you'll be intubating five or six bronchiolitis patients in one of your shifts, um, and there are days where you're not intubating any of them. So it can, it can kind of vary that much, and you can have uh, a lot of acuity all at the same time. Um, to give you an outline, they're all return visits. They're either they were seen at CHLA and then they returned, or they were seen at an outside hospital and then they came to the emergency department at CHLA. A couple of them are through PMDs, where they saw PMD and then they came to the emergency department. I included them because of the points that I want to make with them. Uh, but they're all the dreaded bounce back that everybody hates in the world of EM. Um, respiratory deterioration, this, uh, BC had told me that this is the respiratory month for you guys. So uh, kids, whenever they deteriorate, they deteriorate from a respiratory perspective more often than anything else. It's not like adults where uh, cardiac uh, might be a little bit more uh, likely. And kids almost always respiratory deterioration. Even if they have a cardiac problem, they present in a respiratory way. Um, so I'm going to talk about respiratory cases and focus on cardiac patients because you a lot of times they sneak up on you and um, you want to be ready to handle them. And then I'll talk about specific cases. I have a total of, I think, seven cases. They're all uh, cases that were reviewed in the m, &M setting. And with each one, I'm going to try to get across some concepts. So you can stop me along the way uh, if there's any questions. So uh, restoration I already kind of about, talked about. Benign presentations, except this sort of like the Jeopardy topics I'm giving you that I'm going to cover with the different cases. Um, benign presentations, except are Cases that usually are benign, usually you're going to send them home, and then the ones I want to talk about, something ended up happening that they didn't end up going home, and try to exemplify when should you say, uh, maybe this isn't going to be such so benign, and maybe I need to do something a little further, dig a little bit deeper. Um, the next topic, fail to thrive index of suspicion. Do you guys know what index of suspicion is in PISA interview? Probably not, because it's, it's not your residency program. So um, there's Pediatrics publishes a monthly journal uh, called Peds Interview. Uh, and at the end of Peds Interview, there's cases that get submitted from uh, different residency programs. They're all, they all talk about the way I'm going to present today. They give a chief complaint, history, what happens, and then you try to figure out what the underlying diagnosis was. I really don't like that because you're almost always going to have an index of suspicion when you're seeing somebody uh, in the emergency department. Um, the example I'm going to get across with this is if you have somebody who's failed to thrive or some clue that they're failed to thrive as a neonate 
and they have some sort of problem that makes you think they're from a respiratory time where they're going to deteriorate, those are the ones that you want to have a very high index of suspicion. That's what, that's what that means. Um, it's very easy to write to have a high index of suspicion for this, 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 but in terms of practice, you really can't have a high index of suspicion for every single patient you see. But for the failed to thrive patients is where you want to make the exception. Um, the, one of the cases I'm going to present is a complex medical problem child. It's sort of like the 93-year-old diabetic who comes in complaining that they're dizzy. That's your guys' nightmare. For me, that's, that's the nightmare that I'm going to talk about. And then to be revealed is at the end. I don't want to say anything about the cases because I may give them away. And I saved the last one. Um, uh, I saved the best one for last. And that's the one that's to be revealed. So again, found common pathway. Whether they're vomiting and they have diarrhea, whether they have a cardiac problem, whether they have something inside their gut, whether they have appendicitis, Finally, when they deteriorate, they're going to deteriorate from a respiratory perspective. They're almost always going to get intubated, and then you're going to figure out what went wrong along the way. Um, the first concept I want to get across at with the case that I'm going to give is age of presentation, and then how young. Young, I put in italics and uh, underlined, and I'll explain why. Usually, you're thinking about the zero to two months age. So the next the patient I'm going to talk about is uh, quote-unquote 20 month old. And I'll explain, once I give the details, uh, what I mean by how young. So, first, first case, two and a half month old female. Chief complaint that the parents gave was cough and gagging. Uh, you guys can see the vitals that look pretty normal. 86 over 56 is actually normal. I know that would probably concern you guys, but that's normal for this, for this baby. Congestion was noted on exam, had normal heart and lung sounds. They uh, diagnosed them with viral syndrome and they said follow up in one to two days. Obviously something went wrong, otherwise I wouldn't be talking about it. The next day they came back and I was the one that uh, took care of them. Somehow, some way, it's as if all these bounce backs gravitate towards me. Um, this time, the key complaint was cough and cyanosis. All emergency departments have a triage area. They get triaged and then they go into the room. When they're very sick, they immediately get rushed back. So this patient got immediately rushed back. And you guys can see the vitals now. Um, heart rate is 196, respiratory is 66. They were unable to get a BP, probably because it was very low. 70% um, pulse ox is different than the pulse ox that the patient had the day prior. Uh, the pulse ox improved with the non rebreather that they started in triage as they were bringing back to the emergency department. Uh, we did a cap gas after doing our ABCs. Um, I'm not going to talk about the ABCs and neonates because I think you guys already know that. I'll just talk about the details with each case. So with that gas, um, what do you guys think is going on? What's your convention? PCO2 first? That's PCO2 first, yes. So it's pH, uh, CO2, and then oxygen. So what do you guys think is, uh, what, do, what do you guys make of that? It's a capillary, capillary blood gas, not an arterial blood gas. Right, right. Uh, what should the CO2 have been in somebody who's breathing at 66 and a two and a half month old? Actually, less than 40, okay? So not only is it not less than 40, it's way high. What's considered time where you intubate? What's the CO2 cutoff? You guys may or may not know that. 60. 60. If they're above 60, you can try everything imaginable, high flow, BiPAP, whatever it is, it's not going to get down. You're going to have to intubate them to suck the carbon dioxide out. Anyway, the kid had respiratory failure. So what do you guys think, if you put it together between what I said the day prior and then this presentation, what do you think the kid had? Aspiration, Aspiration uh, is not that common in a two-and-a-half-month-old. Um, they always have reflux, so they kind of have a protective mechanism where it doesn't go down. They're not, if it was um, some, some, somebody that had anoxic brain injury that had some sort of problem, those have aspiration, not this one. Go back to the chief complaint of the day prior, cough and gagging. Foreign body, that's a good thought. Um, they developed... What happened? Did I press something? No. Oh, perfect. Uh, developmentally, uh, two and a half month old isn't going to put stuff inside the mouth. Uh, there was no sibling. That's a question we always ask that was playing with them, sticking things in their mouth. Um, so, good thought, but not really in this age group. Like cardiac shunt? Yeah. Cardiac shunt, that's a great thought. Uh, when you have a cardiac shunt, one of the cases I'll talk about, I'll talk about the hyperoxia test. Do you guys know what the hyperoxia test is? Mm -hmm. Good luck, 
if you give them oxygen, it won't get better. So this improved with the non-rebreather. So likely it's not that, but definitely you have to put that in the. So it makes you think it's more pulmonary. Uh, the other thing about the foreign body, if you had a foreign body that was obstructing the airway, the pulse ox would also not get it better with O2. So ju just to move along, um, we intubated the kid, sent the, guy, sent the kid to the ICU, and was found to have RSV, bronchiolitis, garden variety bronchiolitis. This happens almost every day of the week once the winter starts. So teaching point from this is, I remember I said how young and young I uh, underlined and I italicized. On further history that I got the next day, the kid was actually 30 weeks premature. So when you take a two-and-a-half-month-old who was 30 weeks premature, what's their corrected age? They're almost like they're less than a one-month-old, right? Yeah. If you have a less than one-month-old and you have RSV, you're at risk for spontaneous apnea. So if you don't get the right history in somebody who's young, I put a two-and-a-half-month-old on purpose because it's out of the two, zero to two months, but anybody that you suspect even has a viral syndrome, even has a URI, you want to know what their prematurity history is because it would change what you would do. So if it was the day prior, anybody who has RSV less than a month old automatically gets admitted because of this risk of spontaneous apnea. So you want to, for these kinds of situations, now if somebody is seven years old, who cares if they were 30 weeks premature, right? Um, but if somebody is two months old, three months old, even four months old, you want to get an idea of their prematurity history because whatever they have, if you compare a term neonate versus a premature person who's now the same age as that term neonate, that patient is going to do a lot worse when they get RSV rather than the one that wasn't premature. So that's why I say consider making correction for gestation. There's very little data on um, taking sick kids, adjusting the age, and seeing if that makes a difference in outcome above the zero to two month age group. Um, they have, when they do uh, clinic visits, they do the growth chart for all babies. That's one of the most important things that pediatricians get uh, taught. They do have, and literature's found that they do use that because it's a better predictor of what they're going to do later on. But in terms of, you know, general, general uh, emergency medicine docs, if you're seeing a kid during the winter season when bronchiolitis is likely, keep in mind their correct, <coughs> correct age. So the next topic was, uh, you, yeah, sure. So going back to the first visit, had you had this, the history of prematurity, would you have tested every one of that, every? If I have a less than one month old who has a cough, who has a cough. Positive at a minimum, it's negative sent home? Yes. Okay. Sometimes we have to, we're always full with beds. Sometimes we have to transfer them out. If they're otherwise healthy, they're not, they don't have a chronic problem. But, but this patient. I would test everybody in the emergency department. I would test them if they're one uh, less than one. The the risk of spontaneous apnea dramatically drops after one. I don't know why there's a magical age at 30 days, but I think some hospitals doesn't the RSV take a while for we have a rapid RSV okay. that comes back in an hour. Okay. Sometimes some hospitals they actually do it in batches. I think yeah. So might not find stat, out we do it between what October and April or something during RSV season. There's a date that. Date cut off after which the lab starts doing its stat specimen by specimen. The rest of the year they do it either routine or batched. Mm. We do it uh, stat almost all throughout the year. We have a lot of cardiac kids that come in, so we have to know what their status is regardless of whether or not they have a cough or anything else. Okay. Good question, though. Yeah, if it's going to take a day. You're not going to wait a day to figure out what you're going to do with the patient. So the next topic was usually benign presentations, a breath-holding spell and syncope in kids, usually kids meaning Adolescence, um, and I'll talk about why I mentioned uh, mentioned that breath holding spell is very benign. Happens very commonly. It's the age that the kid starts getting an idea that they can get what they want if they do certain things. Um, they're usually benign, but there are some things in the history that are going to make you say, "Hmm, maybe this isn't going to be so benign." And the time that you think about it is at extremes of age. So for breath holding spell. What's the typical age range for a breath-holding spell? When they can they developmentally do it? Two is the upper limit. It's six months to two years is kind of the bell curve that you're going to have. So does it mean that a three-year-old can't do a breath-holding spell? No, it just tapers off. And does it mean that a, chances are a three-month-old probably can't do it because they don't know, their development they're not ready. But a five-month-old has been diagnosed with it. And the, the patient I'm going to talk about is actually a five-month-old. So they're usually benign, but if they're the extremes of age, always you know, add, add that extra question 
think of QI. So a five-month-old female, chief complaint was episodes of turning blue, just like uh, it happens with breath-holding spells. The PMD had already seen the patient and had already diagnosed the breath-holding spell by history. Uh, it started happen, uh, it was happening more often, kind of not going away once or twice a week. So the mom decided to bring uh, to our emergency department. Vitals were appropriate for a five-month-old female. Postox is 98%. In the ED, the kid was crying, turned blue, had normal heart and lung sounds, and uh, attending, uh, diagnosed a breath-holding spell and was getting ready, and had written breath-holding spell and was getting ready to send the patient home. In the ED, luckily for this patient, the kid turned blue while breathing. So that's key, right? If you have a breath-holding spell, you have to be crying to be blue. Because when you breathe, that's when the blueness goes away. So while breathing and not crying, the kid turned blue and immediately deteriorated. To the most that you had a five-month-old that was trying to die on you right on the spot. Um, they intubated the kid, and... The kid had persistent hypoxia following 100% FiO2 after intubation. So remember I mentioned the hyperoxia test. Uh, we'll keep that in mind. pH was 6.8 when they got the gas back with severe metabolic acidosis with no ketones. Severe metabolic acidosis with no ketones. Keep that in your mind. Uh, it, it'll come back in the talk. So breath-holding spell, extremes of age, if they're less than the six months, if they're outside of the six months to the two-year age group, start to think about it and think about congenital heart disease. So they tried TET maneuvers, TET, uh, tet Tetralogy of Fallot. Why do you think they tried that? It's the most common. I'm sorry? It's the most? It's one of the most common causes of the... Yeah, it's the, yeah, at five months of age, you pretty much, your congenital hearts are kind of dwindling, the number, the hyperplastic left heart, hyperplastic right heart, pulmonary atresia, all those are kind of going down in terms of possibilities. Tetralogy of flow can happen at birth, it can happen at six months, it can happen at four months, it can happen at any time. So it was reasonable for them to try tet maneuvers. Um, I'm sorry? Yeah, I'm getting right there. I'm going to show a diagram. So this is re-emphasizes the point that you said it's the most common thing. If you look, tetralogy of flow can happen in the first two weeks. It can happen six weeks to six months. The other ones are more first two weeks than first month. Um, some of the other ones are not, they don't present as somebody whose cyanosis was automatically trying to die on you. So TLF was a great thought, uh, which is why they tried the TET maneuvers. So I'm going to put the diagram of that. You have a normal heart on the left. You have a tetralogy of flow heart on the right. It'll give you guys a review of what the anatomy is. And looking at the anatomy, you guys, can you guys answer the question as to what TET maneuvers are? So squatting. What happens when you're squatting? You're increasing what? Right. So you're increasing the vascular resistance systemically. What does that mean? That means blood flow is prefer preferentially going to go in a different direction. When you have a TET spell, what's happening? Why are they turning blue? Right. So basically they can't get blood to the lungs. So in order to, for you to get blood to the lungs, you have to increase the pressure somewhere else so that the pressure in the lungs gets less and it preferentially is going to go that way. And Tetralogy of Fallot, why does it present at two weeks, at six weeks, or at six months? What key finding determines whether or not that's cyanotic at birth or they're cyanotic later on when they have a TET spell? The degree of Tetralogy. So the degree of the... Overriding aorta, the thickened right ventricle, the ventricle septal defect, or the pulmonary stenosis? Pulmonary stenosis. It's all the degree of pulmonary stenosis. If you have severe pulmonary stenosis, you're going to have cyanosis at birth. You're going to have to be immediately operated upon. If you have it where it's kind of moderate, they can still, they are pink tets when they're born. You wait until six months because they have a better outcome from the surgery if you wait till six months. So, squatting was one. What else? Knee to chest, swatting, kind of the same concept. Morphine. Why morphine? Right. It's a vasodilator. It decreases the pressure in the pulmonary bed, and it calms the kid down. If they're agitated, they're going to clamp down their pulmonary uh, vasculature. Um, so they tried morphine. They tried that. Yeah, obviously. Typical dose that you would give uh, half make per kilo. Sorry, point... 0.05 mix per kick. Sorry, I, I forgot the zero. My bad. So for a neonate, I'd give half a milligram. Yeah. 
Um, so they tried that, they tried the squat, they intubated the kid, and it wasn't enough. What's the next step? Phenylephrine, right. You're going to try to force blood across by increasing the pressure on one side and trying to overcome the pressure on the other side. So if you have pet maneuvers are not successful, what's the diagnosis then? I'm not expecting you to know. It's just very interesting. You can present at this time. It can present as a breath-holding spell, something you have to think about. So it's something that's acting like a tet, but anatomically it doesn't end up to be a tet. So if you do an ultrasound, you're going to find the same elevated pulmonary pressures, but no anatomy consistent with a tet, which is just what it is. Elevated pulmonary hypertension, primary pulmonary hypertension, which is when this presents, right at five months or six months. So if you have a breath-holding spell, not necessarily less than six months, but at the, you know, at the outliers of the bell curve, think about maybe watching the kid a little bit longer so that they can do this on you. Because if this happened five minutes out and they were in the car, they'd be dead. So lucky for this five-month-old, uh, she's still, she's doing well. She's on Bosantin, which is the drug they use for, for pulmonary hypertension. Yeah. Gosh. It's the equivalent of Viagra, but they give it, uh, they, they can give it to intravenously, continuously, and they can give it to kids. Is it a isn't it a disaster if that is shut off abruptly? We've had patients who come in and they're on their pump and their pump's not working and they get all freaked out about their continuous infusion. It's a disaster in that uh, let's, it's sort of like um, kids that are dependent on TPN, their sugar drops by like the two and a half, three hour mark. Um, the the half-life is a little bit longer for the placentin, so it's not like you have to panic on the spot as soon as it stops. You have a little bit of time. But yeah, the concept is the same. Um, unlike the reactive hypoglycemia that TPN kids get, this isn't as tragic. It's not like you have to get it restarted. You can give other drugs along the way. So uh, this is syncope now. Um, sure, sorry. For bosantin or yeah. bosantin, you don't start in the emergency department. That's something that the cardiologists start. That's something that cardiologists start after they figure out after they get a cardiac cath. So bosantin is not something you can give right away. You don't use Viagra. You don't use anything like that. That's gonna. You don't really know how the patient's gonna react to the things you do are morphine, uh, the lick to chest volume if they're dry, and finally phenylephrine, an alpha agonist that's gonna push blood across the pulmonary blood. Those were unsuccessful, so they paralyzed the kid. Once they paralyzed the kid and started uh, midazolam drip, they were able to buy time to take go up to the unit, um, continue the paralyzation, and then get the ultrasound that confirmed pulmonary hypertension. Then they gave a dose of uh, Viagra after the kid had a cath the next day while they prepped for bosantin. So in terms of ED, you're not going to be doing anything fancy like Viagra or bosantin. If they're already on it, you can give an extra dose. Uh, but it's pretty much morphine, intubate, uh, volume, and alpha agonist. If you, usually you don't need the alpha agonist. Usually it doesn't need to get there. Um, this one, they were thinking of starting it, and then once they paralyzed, it was successful. Did I answer your question? Yeah. yeah? Okay. So, this is a two-year-old female who has a history of asthma. Chief complaint is fever, fainting spells, slash syncope, and difficulty breathing. So um, a two-year-old shouldn't be having fainting spells and syncope. Again, this is an outlier in terms of age. If they're a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 17-year-old, it's more likely. Again, extremes of age, a question mark should come up in your head. So this was actually August 10, 2010. Um, those were the, it was night nighttime, around 10 o'clock. Those were the vitals. The kid got two albuterol treatments, and the discharge diagnosis was asthma, viral syndrome, tonsillar enlargement was sent home. Next day, uh, one day later, almost 23 hours later, chief complaint was vomiting, fainting, congestion. You can see the vitals, more tachycardic, more tachypnic, SATs are lower. They tried one albuterol treatment again, and the kid immediately deteriorated and progressed to intubation and was found to have ADEM that was attacking, attacking the brainstem uh, cardiac regulatory center. So she was probably fainting because Acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. Usually it's an autoimmune reaction to a virus that she had maybe two to four weeks prior. A lot of times we can't identify the organism. Um, my point in this case isn't to get across that you have to think about ADEM, but 
if syncope is out of the adolescent age range, you have to think, is there something else going on? Um, the kid was getting albuterol all night long because they were given albuterol when they left the emergency department. The final dose was the final string that kind of let the patient go. Um, the ADEM was affecting the brainstem, and likely all the fainting spells were faulty irregulation from high above. Her heart actually was otherwise fine. So, any questions about the benign cases? Yeah. Is there any treatment for that if you catch it? Uh, not really. No. You kind of have to wait to see what the autoimmune response is going to do. A lot of our kids that end up being MRCP, trach, vent, and G-tube are those kinds of kids, unfortunately. And this can, this can come to your emergency department, too. It doesn't have to come. How common is the ADEM? ADEM, during the summertime, it was August. Uh, we have about five cases between July and September, so it's not that common. Your normal volume? Our yearly volume is about 65 to 70,000. And nighttime, around 10 o'clock, is when our single coverage starts. So one single attending is covering all these with a bunch of residents. So th that's no excuse, by the way, in terms of the, the medical legal perspective. They don't care what your census was on the day that you were taking care of them. Um, this, I think anybody in their mind wouldn't have thought about ADEM, but somebody who's having syncope, fainting spells at the age of two, there's a problem. At a minimum, you could have just admitted the kid and observed uh, without doing anything else that would have been probably the right thing to do. It's very easy to say that in retrospect. That's the hard thing about my job. Um, but at least we can learn from it that next time somebody who's two years old, three years old, four years old, six years old, even up to 10 years old, if they have syncope, you got to do a little more digging than just a couple of albuterol treatments. So I mentioned before, failure to thrive. Um, this gets hammered into us during pediatric residency. You guys don't do it as much. There's the growth chart that we get very familiar with. You kind of see it in your dream at night, they saw it so, so often. Um, <laughs> the, reason is because, the reason is because it's important. It tells you a lot of information about how a kid is doing. If a patient is following the growth curve, it means that they're thriving, they're healthy, they're not going to deteriorate from a trivial problem that um, some other patient who has failed to thrive will deteriorate from. Remember I mentioned the index of suspicion? So if somebody has failed to thrive and they're coming in with a cough, respiratory complaint, some sort of complaint, vomiting, not tolerating PO, um, those things should make you kind of think about, okay, maybe I need to dig it a little bit deeper. So this is a 15-day mail um, presented to the ED. Again, I, I was the attending. Uh, Ashen in triage, uh, looking like he was about to die, brought back immediately. Had had previous four PMD visits for poor weight gain. So already the kid early on is demonstrating that um, he's not doing too good. Vitals were 37.6, 186, 36 shallow. They were unable to get a BP. Pulse ox was 98% with the non-ruby there. So again, hyperoxide test, you kind of effectively, potentially ruled out a congenital heart problem. The only thing you may not rule out because you don't have all the information yet except for the last bullet point, you could have a critical coarct that could present this way, um, which is why I included that the kid had symmetric pulses uh, bilaterally. Hypotonic, tachypneic, tachycardic. Obviously, this is somebody that any emergency department is going to get the ABC, is going to get intubated, you're going to do everything for this kid. So after you do all that, some labs come back. I'll let you guys take a look at that. So 15-day male, Ashen, who presents dying on you. What, do you guys, what is it? Congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Okay, this is one of the things where somebody mentioned steroids in TB. Avoid it until you do something else. This go to it like you, you can't wait until yesterday until it happens. So the sodium is low, potassium is high. What's the gas? It's a primary metabolic acidosis and a respiratory component as well. Because when the kids, when the babies get sick, kind of everything goes off. So, so, how, do you, so how do you come to that conclusion? Tell us your thought process. So the pH is low, the kid's acidotic. Um, the minus 18 is a deficit that they're behind, they're dry, because obviously they don't have enough aldosterone around to keep their intravascular volume up. In addition to that, the CO2 is high. So it's not that they're compensating, they're deteriorating, they can't keep it down, because otherwise with the bicarb being minus 18, they should be tachypnic and blowing off the CO2. When they can't, they have a mixed problem. So there's congenital adrenal hyperplasia, steroids, volume, dextrose. So looking at the labs and looking at the treatment, 
what's the correct order? So if it, this if this if this comes in, I, I I did, but it was kind of a trick. Um, if this comes into your ED, what is? Dextrose has to go first, right? Yeah. Right. You don't want a hypoglycemic seizure while you're waiting for the dextrose ampule to get ready. So it's dextrose, steroids. Steroids and volume can kind of go back and forth. This one, this kid is likely, uh, not likely, this kid had two IOs. We were doing one on one side. On the other side, we were doing something else. Um, but key is, if you have to pick one from those, you pick the dextrose first, and then um, all kids that are sick, you're going to do an AccuCheck, and I'll talk about that later on. It always goes wrong. So an AccuCheck doesn't tell you that this is a metabolic problem. It just tells you that they're sick and they can't handle it because their reserves are very low. So fail to thrive. Think about somebody potentially getting sick. And here I'm going to mention another concept. Um, approach to the ill neonate. This actually Lance Brown taught me during my fellowship. Um, you guys may have heard it. I don't know if you've been to some of his talks. I'll just repeat it here because it's great to keep in mind. You have a sick baby that's dying on you. You can narrow down all the different possibilities to these five. Sepsis, non-accidental trauma, metabolic, cardiac, and gut. Gut meaning volvulus from malrotation. So anytime you have a sick baby, 15-day-old, one-month-old, two-month-old, they come in, they're dying on you, think of all these five, try to address all of them, and likely you'll figure out what the problem is. In this case, it happened to be metabolic. Just to go in, metabolic is something that makes everybody queasy because they don't really know what's going on. They don't really know all the metabolic processes. This is my way of keeping it all simple. If you do this, it doesn't matter what kind of metabolic problem they have. Do the RBCs, do your AccuCheck, do your blood gas. ISTAT is the name we have for our sodium, potassium, all the different electrolytes that we get. Add a pneumonia. If you have somebody who everything is off, they look like they're sick, they're not gaining weight well, add a pneumonia in your uh, labs. Take the breast milk away because galactosemia is something that uh, is going to cause hypoglycemia and they're going to present as if they're septic. You take the breast milk away, the, the substrate that's going to make the problem worse. You give them bicarb to try to correct that severe acidosis that they have. A lot of them, uh, particularly the organic acidemias, are going to cause liver failure because of the amount of infiltration they have into the liver. You have to think about blood products and then steroids. Steroids is reserved for the congenital adrenal hyperplasia. If you remember this slide, you can take care of a metabolic problem. It doesn't matter what the ideology is. Speaking of the ideology, fat, protein, carbohydrate, urea cycle, and congenital adrenal hyperplasia. As an EM doc, I would keep the congenital adrenal hyperplasia in the back pocket. Always think, is this congenital adrenal hyperplasia? Rule it out, then move on. The others, like I said, if you just do the stuff in the previous slide, you kind of are going to treat the badness along the way while you get on the phone and try to get some help. Um, in terms of the interest of time, we're running late. Let me, I was just going to go over a little detail, but I don't have to do all that much. So to summary, I could check blood gas with ISTAT, take the ammonia, uh, steroids for CAH, support liver failure. You always give D10. You don't want to put anybody on D5 when they're a neonate because they don't have enough dextrose. They're sick. They're utilizing more. They already are low. You want to put them on D10. Uh, you remove uh, ammonia with sodium benzoate if you find a high level. When you check the ammonia, you have to make sure it's on a cold, uh, it's on ice. Otherwise, the level will be abnormally off. We're not, the normal is 50. If you have something that's 60, 70, it's not causing this deterioration. It has to be above 100 for them to be as sick as this patient presented. And then correct the acidosis with bicarb. So this was just the summary of uh, that little thing. So this was my equivalent of your 93-year-old diabetic who comes in dizzy, the example that I gave. So you have an eight-week-old female, complex congenital heart disease that consists of double outright ventricle, heterotaxy, transposition of the great arteries, status post PT shunt. Essentially, this is a disaster waiting to happen in anybody's emergency department. Um, she had recently got, uh, she had recently gotten, uh, not necessarily, that's why, that's why we are here. Double outlet right ventricle. Um, essentially, all that, all it means is it's switched to one side and it's functioning as a single ventricle. It's a ductal dependent lesion. If they don't get the BT shunt, they're going to die. So they go on PGE and then they get the BT shunt. You can narrow it down like that. Eventually, it's going to become single ventricle fontan, that pathway. Um, I'm sorry? And then they'll live a little bit longer, and then eventually they'll pass away, yeah. So the chief complaint was the G-tube side was red, and there was pus. Um, it, had, it was recently placed after the kid had a BT shunt. With this kind of anatomy, they don't thrive very well, so you've got to get the weight up so that you can do the following third and fourth, second and third procedures for the Glen and then the Fontan. 
Um, all these names I'm throwing, you don't have to know it. That's not what I'm going to get across today. Um, anybody that has a recent G-tube that was placed, recent being within a month, they, the surgeons like to be aware and like to see the patient. So they were in the emergency department. Um, they diagnosed G-tube cellulitis. They discharged the patient with antibiotics. So visit one is 9.30 in the morning on August 8th. Um, visit two was uh, a little past midnight. Again, same history. Now the chief complaint is fever, vomit. Uh, bear in mind the mom was 15 years old. Um, so I think that may have that may have badly, or I'll just say, I'll just say that and not make any comment. Um, <laughs> there were there were normal temps noted in the ED. Was observed for three to four hours. Repeat temps were normal, and the kid was discharged home. Feared complaint unfounded, and complex congenital heart disease like the, like she had. Somebody wrote that on a diagnosis on the chart. Yeah, we have that a lot whenever parents come in on a this. On a less than eight-week-old, a lot of people in, in our division will do a full workup. Um, so if they come in complaining that the child had a fever and it turns out they don't have a fever, that's the accepted diagnosis that goes on record. And that applies only to the fever part, not to the other parts that I'm going to get into. Um, so finally, they gravitated... I write history of fever none found. That's, that doesn't judge doesn't put a judgment on the chart about whether you believe the parents when something goes wrong. We had this discussion with our associate director who's in charge of the billing and all that. The people that bill can't find that as a diagnosis, so they put this. This actually is better for the patient because it costs them less when they come in. Um, yours may have costed more given the cardiac history. But I'm not disagreeing with you. I agree. It's, it's misleading. When, when something goes wrong, if something is about to, Yes, yes. Any patient you see... Put it this way. On your chart, never put something that says, I disbelieve the patient's history. That's always going to look bad. Right. For, for this, I'm not saying that they said fear complaint unfounded in their differential. In their differential, they said sepsis, uh, all the badness that can happen. And then the impression was written as that. I'm just giving you the final impression to give you the gist of it. So I, I agree with you completely from a QI perspective. So on the third visit, they gravitated to me again. Um, same, increased fever. Mom was right this time. So even though she was 15, she obviously persists. You know what was going on. Now the kids started vomiting. Again, there was rushed back, pale, agitated, heart rate of 190. And somebody who has that anatomy is not so good. It's like your 80-year-old or 70-year-old who has a heart rate of 160. You know you need to do something about it right away. Um, and the kid had abnormal distension. So I approached it the same way, even though this is a complicated patient. Sepsis, non-accidental trauma, metabolic, cardiac, gut. Unfortunately for her, it could be all those possibilities. Likely it's not metabolic, because by this time she wouldn't have tolerated the BT stunt surgery. It wasn't non-accident trauma. There wasn't any other bruises that I could see. The mom seemed legitimate. She, she was bringing him back for the third time. I have seen other QI cases that they come back, the third visit comatose, and it was non-accidental trauma that was missed on the previous visit, which is why I'm talking about that specifically. But I really didn't think it was that. So with this patient, was it a cardiac problem that precipitated the gut? Was it the gut that precipitated the heart to not do well and then the kid got septic? Or did the kid get septic from the G-tube cellulitis and because of that the heart didn't do well and then couldn't perfuse the gut? So anything can go wrong essentially with this. The AccuCheck was 187. Blood gas was metabolic respiratory acidosis. The BT shunt murmur was present. So the teaching point with this case, anytime you have somebody who has a BT shunt, you need to make sure there's a shunt. This is the only time that a murmur is a good sound a lot of murmurs in kids usually are normal sounds, but a loud, harsh murmur is a good sound in somebody that has this history. It means that the shunt is open. If you have this history, they just had a BT shunt, you can't hear a harsh murmur, uh, they need to get the cardiac surgeons in the room immediately because likely the kid is dying and the shunt is closing off. So the shunt was present, the, ab the belly was distended. Does this really help me? No, it's still sepsis, uh, gut or cardiac, any one of those things can be wrong. Just because the shunt murmur is present doesn't mean that the heart is still doing fine. It could still be not perfusing all that great. KB showed dilated loops of bowel, uh, chest looked pulmonary edema, the NG tubes, I put the NG in to start decompressing the stomach, start putting bilious output, uh, called the surgeons in, they didn't want to take the OR that day, they went to the PICU, they took the kid to the OR the next day, and the kid had volvulus. So, the if you keep in mind, the kid had a history of double outright ventricle heterotaxy. Heterotaxy means the anatomy switched, 
and heterotaxy patients are at risk for midgut lobulus because they don't have embryologically the normal rotation that they should get, they should get in their intestines. So, yes, treat it as if it's a single ventricle physiology dependent on the BT shunt, but if they put either TGA, sometimes parents don't know that there's heterotaxy. In this case, the 15-year-old did. Yes. Um, Sometimes they can just say TGA. TGA be suspicious that there might be cytosomersis, especially if you heart to feel their heart on the opposite sound. If you hear something like that and they're vomiting, it's not automatically volvulus, but you need to think about it. Okay? So, any questions on that complicated case? No? Getting you excited, giving you nightmares tonight? <laughs> <laughs> So they, they uh, in the operating room, they tracked down to that area. It wasn't tracking down into the belly. Um, pus can sometimes look like normal granulation tissue when you have it recently placed in the, uh, the recent gastrostomy tube placement. So the thought was that it was just normal reactive process and there was something else going on. So the first complaint was just for... Just the G2 site. They treated it as antibiotic conservatively, okay. which is what our surgeons typically do. Um, the second time, the surgeons weren't called because the mom's complaint was just fever and was observed for four hours, didn't have a fever. Um, if it was any other three-month-old, they wouldn't have been observed. It's only because of the complicated history that the attending has had. The cases I'm giving, the attendings aren't cavalier attendings that are like, oh, sending, that we're not sending kids home left and right. Um, bad things happening even if you're doing the right thing. So the point is you got to you know, still take the next step and think about it. Okay. This is a four-day-old male, poor feeding times two. Mom called the PMD, uh, had been to the PMD the day prior as the routine check when they get it three days. Uh, the next day when she called the PMD, PMD said less formula but give more frequently, which is a common thing pediatricians will recommend over the phone. Four hours later, the kid's still not feeding well, and mom decides to bring the kid, emergency department to the, uh, the kid to the emergency department appropriately. There are some moms that will wait. Um, in this case, this mom didn't wait. At the six-hour mark from the time that the mom noted the poor feeding. Uh, while the patient is in triage, the pulse ox is 90% to Kipnik. We have a five-tier system, one, two, three, four, five. If they're uh, one, it means they're red. It means somebody has, an attending has to be in the room almost immediately. Two is a little bit less than that. It's called emergent or yellow. We, an attending has to be in the room within uh, uh, 35, 40 minutes. So those kids are the ones that, those are the common, when you guys see our board, commonly it's mostly yellows and a couple of reds. So most of the yellows, a resident goes in within the first 20, 30 minutes, and then an attending goes in if something's wrong when the nurse grabs them. So at 6 hours and 30 minutes, the attending was in the room at 30 minutes. The kid had dyspnea, hypotension, hepatomegaly, pulse 80%, and grayish blue color of the skin. What am I hinting at? C CHF, yes, some sort of congenital heart disease that's acutely deteriorating. Why are they acutely deteriorating at four days? The duct is closing, right? So this isn't the CHF like you get with a VSD. This is an over-circulation phenomenon. This is just a phenomenon where blood flow isn't moving at all, okay? So which patient is this, the one on the right or the one on the left? The one on the right, yeah. So following intubation, the SATs were 85%. That's my hyperoxia test. What is that doing? Right, there's a shunt that's not changing. Likely there's a cardiac problem. I could check is 36. Does it mean it's metabolic? No, the kid is just sick. That's why the glucose is low. Um, the blood gas shows metabolic acidosis again. This is garden variety, ductal-dependent lesion. You don't even have to wait for the echocardiogram. Just start PGE after you intubate, and you give some volume. So left-sided heart failure, evidence of inadequate circulation secondary to closure of the ductus arteriosus. This is kind of the same thing. This could be any kind of diagnosis. Pulmonary atresia, hypoplastic left heart, hypoplastic right heart, tricuspid atresia. This is the chest x-ray. What are you guys seeing on the chest x-ray? Right. Cardiomegaly with not much blood flow to the lungs because it can't get there because it's blockage that's not getting. That's why the kids, not, uh, uh, the sets are not coming up even if you give them 100% oxygen. You can have the exact same history, the exact same presentation with this chest x-ray where the heart is not big. What diagnosis do you have to think about now? Mm -mm. 
sepsis usually improves. The oxygenation will get better. It's the same exact thing. Hyperoxia tests didn't get better. They're cyanotic. They're acutely deteriorating. Let me give you... Uh, trichospitresia is here. Trichospitresia. So, to give you a hint, I, I wasn't expecting you guys to know this, but it, it helps to think about if you're out in the emergency department somewhere, you, you, you have this history, you see this x-ray, don't stop. Still give the PGE because it's still a congenital heart problem. Why? So, with these, it's all... The heart is trying very hard to get the blood flow to the lungs. With this x-ray, the blood is in the lungs, it just can't come back to the heart. Total anomalous pulmonary venous return, which is another ductal dependent lesion that can present as a neonate exactly the same way. Okay? So you guys see the difference between the two? So sometimes people will look at one, look at the whole clinical picture instead of just looking at one isolated finding. Um, some rules for cyanotic congenital heart disease. Uh, in the presence of normal hemoglobin and normal cardiac output, right-to-left shunting must be present to produce cyanosis. There has to be a right-to-left shunt, meaning the blood has to preferentially go away from the lungs somewhere else in order to get, not get oxygenated and end up causing cyanosis. They're not usually associated with murmurs. Um, um, you don't necessarily have to hear a murmur. This patient that I talked about, you don't necessarily have to have a murmur. It's only the ones, the cyanotic tetralogy of flow patients that will have a loud murmur because of the Pulmonary, the severe pulmonary stenosis. Um, a critical mass of reduced hemoglobin must be present to allow visual estimation of cyanosis. Why do I mention that? Once kids have their initial uh, neonatal BT shunt or whatever else they have, they don't sat perfect. They sat, they still sat 70%, 75%, 80%, depending on what the goal is. A lot of times they have issues around the two months, three months, where they reach their physiologic nadir of their hemoglobin. And what happens with that is it gives you a false sense of not having cyanosis when they really should. Um, I put that in mind just if you're in that age group and they're not looking that blue, but their history makes you suspicious that they are blue, just dig a little bit deeper to make sure you know exactly what the anatomy is and you understand what the uh, what physiology is going on. Um, issues about congenital heart disease in the neonate um, that make QI interesting. You can't, it's hard, even though I gave a classic case, Sometimes they don't follow the classic way. It's hard to differentiate, even with the hyperoxia test, even with all our physical exam findings, it's hard to differentiate congenital heart disease from respiratory tract disease. Um, you can have the same extent of desaturation if you have parenchymal lung disease, but it'll almost always get a little bit better. Like it'll, if you have somebody who's setting 60%, they'll get up to like 90, whereas the cardiac patient won't do that. It'll kind of stay in the mid, mid 80s. It won't ever get above 90. Um, murmurs are not always present, like I mentioned before. And checking for the liver edge below doesn't necessarily mean that it's completely hard because if there's a respiratory problem, they're going to hyperexpand. When they hyperexpand, they're going to push their liver down. So you can have somebody who has bronchiolitis with the liver edge three centimeters below the costal margin, and it's not a cardiac problem. It's a respiratory problem. Again, the reason why I put this up, I want to put the whole, you've got to put the whole picture together and not just depend on just one finding in these uh, babies that can mimic anything. Um, and kids can have wheezing, they can have retractions, and it could be respiratory or it could be cardiac. It just makes things a little bit more, uh, more interesting. Any questions about that case? I'm going to finish up with the most interesting case that I had. Um, it's a three-week-old male. The chief complaint is vomiting every single feeding. Um, one day prior, was an outside ED, was diagnosed with bowel syndrome and discharged home. This was an outside... Um, uh, emergency department that gets staffed by general practitioners. Um, if you have a three-week-old male, you don't really want to put viral syndrome as your diagnosis. You want to put maybe vomiting improved or um, reflux or um, if you say viral syndrome, it means you're not really thinking about what the actual process might be going on. So one day prior, they had that and they came in. The next day, uh, was a very well-appearing neonate, 369, 156, 36, 90, all normal vital signs. Three weeks is the age where polyxenosis kind of gets into the picture. When I started residency, it was about four to six weeks was the age. That's because people weren't very good at ultrasound. Kids were coming in a little bit later, a little bit emaciated, vomiting a bit more. Now, as I've diagnosed polyxenosis, somebody who's two weeks old. So three weeks old, vomiting every single feeding, looking well. I saw this kid before we sent him to ultrasound. Um, I was not worried about congenital heart at all, which is what it ended up being. Um, ultrasound was performed, it was normal. They came back. Um, we said, let's try an ounce of formula and see what happens. Because always when 
kids this age vomit, parents will always give more, trying to compensate because they're not getting enough. So you want to give a small amount. The kid tolerated an ounce, and I went back in to see, and I had a dead, uh, not sorry, not a dead, a dying neonate on my hands. Um, mom had just fed him, and he was uh, wrapped, unwrapped, and he was like that ashen baby that was dying to try and die on me. So, did the ABCs, again, severe metabolic acidosis without any ketones, normal ammonia, improvement in the pulse oximetry. So that's where things kind of got thrown off for me. And the kid was having retractions with normal breath sounds. So put that in your mind. Let's go back to a neonate presenting sepsis, non-accidental trauma, metabolic, cardiac gut. My gut was telling me, not that this was a gut, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I was thinking it was cardiac, but as soon as we put the kid on a non-rebreather and we intubated, he seemed to get a bit better. Um, still kind of remained hypotonic. So it kind of threw things off. Um, I wasn't really sure what was going on. Uh, again, had metabolic acidosis without any ketones. This is very similar. Remember I said earlier with that five-month-old that had pulmonary hypertension, had metabolic acidosis and normal ketones. Normally when you have metabolic acidosis, you think, okay, there's some sort of uh, alteration in their metabolism, so they're going to use something else to try to meet their demands. That's why they make ketones. This kid wasn't making ketones, so why did it happen? Um, it had normal pneumonia. Oxygen was improved. It means there's no shunt. Um, this isn't pulmonary hypertension because pulmonary hypertension doesn't respond simply to oxygen. So it kind of created a little funny picture. I was like, hmm, what to do next? Um, again, I kept things in mind. I gave the kid antibiotics. Um, I started on the 10 after giving some boluses. We intubated the kid. Um, and I still thought about cardiac even though the hyperoxia wasn't getting better because immediately deteriorated after having one ounce. Something was obviously going on that immediately changed. And still I was thinking, even though the hyperoxia test was okay, um, I still was thinking there was something else going on. So I got the ultrasound and there was LV dysfunction which didn't really help me because you can have sepsis and because of that you can have LV dysfunction. You can have a metabolic problem like Pompe disease that can present this way. It still didn't help me. Um, I'm not uh, a good, I'm good at ultrasound in terms of I can get an idea about the overall uh, pumping of the heart, but I'm not good at saying, no, there's no uh, shunt here and there. Not the details of that. I'm not, I'm not as good as that. But there was, but I knew it didn't exist because the, Hyperoxia test was normal, so I knew there was no shunt. But there was dysfunction, so it kind of created a picture that made me think, hmm, what's going on? Does anybody have a clue? So with this LV dysfunction, I started norinone in the ED because my blood pressures were normal. My oxygen was normal after I intubated the kid. The heart rate uh, was 150s to 160s. Um, after I started norinone, I got an EKG and it was neonatal SVT with WPW. So there was the delta wave on the EKG. After I made the kid better, his heart rate jumped up to the 270s, and he started responding to adenosine. So I still lose sleep over this kid, and I can't figure out, was he in SVT when he came in, and we sent him over to get the ultrasound to check for pyloxenosis, or was he in SVT the entire day prior until then, hadn't yet crashed, took the one ounce, feeding an ounce in a baby is a stress. And is that the stress that deteriorated him? I'm thinking... His heart rate was in the 160s. 160s, exactly. But that was because his heart wasn't doing so well. When his heart did better after the mineral, he was in the 270s. So was he intermittently going up to 270s? That's what the WPW does, it's intermittent. The right. The... The fact that he deteriorated, the, the WPW almost never deteriorates like this. Um, there was something weird about this kid that made it that way. All WPWs, it's a kid who's fussy and you see that the heart rate is 270. It's not uh, for a day that they're vomiting. Right, but he could have had two different things, that he was vomiting for some other reason and just happened to go into PSVT at the time that he drank his formula. Um, such an abrupt deterioration, it's easy to say that he went from a normal, a normal rhythm to, to PSVT or AFib with a rapid ventricular rate. It just happened to be coincidence when he was drinking. I don't think that's what happened. I think the kid was in SPD for the whole day, and then that's when he finally deteriorated, when the final... Well, the previous day, pulse, I don't know what it was. When he was in the ED, he had the triage. 
and he was sent to ultrasound when his pulse wasn't getting monitored? Was it that he was having SVT, we just weren't catching it? Because um, when you put somebody on a monitor, uh, sometimes when it's 270, it won't catch it. It'll half it instead of giving you the full amount. So until you actually listen and feel a pulse, you can't really tell. And th the entire time, up until the point that his heart got better, he never got up to the 270s, which is weird. Neonatal, neonatal SVT almost always, um, if you look at it, they have a heart rate that's above 220. So I still lose sleep over this kid, and hopefully with the presenting to you guys, you guys would think about it. Everything was pointing towards something cardiac because you don't have... It was something that happened acutely because he didn't develop ketones, like the other five-month-old that was immediately shunting. So without the ketones, I, I knew something the kid had deteriorated under our care. We just weren't smart enough to figure it out. Finally, we figured it out. He's doing well now. He didn't stop until he got procainamide, and now he's at home on procainamide thriving. Uh, and later on, they'll do more EP studies to figure out exactly what kind of, uh, what, what the entry tract is. Any questions about this kid? Did I save the best for last? Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, so this was the thing somebody requested to get done. When you start Usually you're not start starting them until they get intubated anyway, because that's your definitive hyperoxia test. Th theoretically, your bag with 100% FiO2 is your hyperoxia test, um, but you want to intubate them because PGE, one of the responses that you get is apnea. And they get hypotensive. So you, so you intubate just kind of before you do all that? Yeah. And if they're coming th as sick as somebody that you would start PGE on, you are intubating them anyway. You're going to get the airway anyway. Sure. What medicine are you going to use to intubate patients that you suspect have a cardiac problem? Ketamine is a bit young in the neonate, it's because that's when they present. Um, although probably you could use it. Ketamine's safety profile is getting better and better and better. It's getting younger and younger that we use it. Usually people use fentanyl and Merced. Sometimes people will do automate. Our emergency department doesn't do it because uh, we're convinced that it lowers the, the cortisol level, which they may need to fight it off. Um, I'm saying we're convinced. It's mostly our ICU is convinced. So we don't like sending somebody to the ICU that just got automated. It pisses them off. But it probably is okay, because I used to use it all the time in and then nothing really bad happened. So it's always, you know, where you practice kind of determines what med you give. But uh, the fentanyl numbers said are great choices. Is that just for cardiac causes or in general for neonates? Um, if somebody, in general for neonates, fentanyl versed is great. For trauma, fentanyl versed is great because it doesn't increase your intracranial pressure. Um, lidocaine, I, the studies don't show that. A lot of time, the past history, in trauma setting, they'd give lidocaine, pre-medication, to try to decrease the intracranial pressure. Um, if somebody were worried about sepsis, like the eight-week-old that was having abdominal distension and had temperature 83, we would not use etomidate in that setting. And if the blood pressure was low, we'd go with ketamine rather than um, fentanyl number said in that setting. Your blood pressure has to be pretty low for you not to use fentanyl number said. More often, if you think fentanyl number said, chances are you'll be able to use it. Uh, systolics of 50s. Normal blood pressure is 70. Well, the borderline of hypotension is 70 systolic plus the age times 2. So essentially, if the kid's not even a year old yet, it's 70. Yeah. 80 is pretty normal. 70 is, is clearly abnormal, or below 70 is clearly abnormal. 50, yes, bad. But at 70, I would start worrying. 80 should be. Any other questions? Thank, yeah. you. Thank you. I'm just going to hand it in over there. There's a little spike. I should get a picture. I don't need to hand it to me. <laughs> you know who's team Sharice? Sharice, are you participating? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Make sure you, you knew how much we appreciate you coming. Oh, oh, great! So oh, great! So Thank you. So Thanks a lot. We don't get enough peace. Oh, good, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Oh, my pleasure. Pleasure. What's your name? Andrew. Andrew. Nice to meet you. Oh, perfect. Nice to meet you. Did I just leave this here? Yeah. Yeah.
Michigan. Oh, we got all this taken care of with the recordings and yeah. Uh, we took care of this one. Uh, I think it's really loud. We're not gonna be.